Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, subvariants, spikes, and sewers. A few indicators remind us that we're not quite out of the woods yet when it comes to COVID. Plus, a new method that shows how any person can be trained to harness the creativity inside of themselves. And what it means that the sun is getting more and more active. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. After Omicron calmed down here in the States, we got a bit of a reprieve as case rates continued to plummet. But last week, I started noticing more and more people I knew were testing positive. And not just testing positive, but getting pretty sick from COVID. Now, while the case rates in my area haven't ticked back up much yet, there are a few indications beyond anecdotal cases among my friends that they could be about to do so again. Now, one place we can look, as we've done throughout the pandemic, is at Europe, especially the United Kingdom. They have reliably preceded us in COVID trends by a few weeks with every variant and surge. And right now, things aren't looking great. Quoting CNBC, COVID cases have increased dramatically in the UK in recent weeks, while Germany continues to mark record high daily infections with more than 250,000 new cases a day. Elsewhere, France, Switzerland, Italy, and the Netherlands are all seeing COVID infections start to rise again, aided and abetted by the relaxation of coronavirus measures and the spread of a new subvariant of Omicron known as BA2, end quote. Yes, the so-called stealth Omicron that you might have heard a little about back during the initial Omicron surge is apparently back, or really never went away, but is rearing its head more fiercely now. And just to be clear here, the stealth descriptor isn't because it, like, sneaks up on you with a gnarly infection or something. The stealth part refers to its mutations being very difficult to distinguish from Delta in PCR tests, whereas BA1, the OG Omicron, looks very different from Delta, BA2 can be harder to spot. CNBC cites Danish scientists who say that the BA2 subvariant is one and a half times more transmissible than the original Omicron, and that more than half of new cases in Germany are BA2, while about 11% of cases in the US are. Apparently, a lot of those are in New York, according to data from the CDC, so that might explain why so many of my friends got sick recently. Friends I only interact with virtually, for the record, and I am still getting tested regularly. So far, so good here. But of course, China is currently facing a huge COVID outbreak, which CNBC describes as one of the worst since the height of the pandemic in 2020. It's not clear yet how much of that is from BA2, but one infectious disease expert told local media that it was indeed the BA2 subvariant driving the outbreak. BA2 has so far shown to be more likely to cause infection among household contacts compared to the original Omicron, but it doesn't seem to cause more severe illness or increase the risk of hospitalization. That is all very preliminary data, however. And, you know, just a reminder that vaccines are greatly helping reduce the number of hospitalizations and deaths. Vaccine efficacy for BA2 so far seems to be about the same as BA1. CNBC cites the UK's health security agency as efficacy being about 77% shortly after a booster shot, but waning over time. And the WHO says that it looks like folks who had the original Omicron have a pretty strong protection against this subvariant 
as well. They also say, and again, this is all very initial data, that while this subvariant is more transmissible than the original Omicron, it's not as big a difference as the huge uptick in transmissibility that we saw between Delta and Omicron. So we've got a new subvariant right as protocols have been relaxed or all out done away with in many parts of the world. No one could have possibly predicted this. Except maybe my good old friend the Wastewater Network, propelling out of our sewer systems like a hormonal anthropomorphic turtle in search of a good slice, coronavirus sample rates nearly doubled between the first week of February and the first week of March at a third of CDC sample sites across the U.S., now, they're still quite low. It's not a cause for alarm, but the wastewater numbers have been a reliable indicator of coming spikes in infections, especially as testing rates go down. You know, unless it's required by your job, most people aren't getting tested these days unless they experience symptoms or have been exposed. So we have a lot less data on asymptomatic cases or even some symptomatic ones that might have been mild enough to be confused with a cold. The sewers are where we can get more accurate predictions, and some of them are portending at least a slight bump to come. Although, notably, 59% of sample sites still had falling trends for the week ending March 10th. And as a reminder for the whole wastewater thing, quoting Bloomberg, people infected with coronavirus shed viral particles in their stool, which then flows into the sewer system when they use the toilet. Because they begin to give off the virus early in the course of infection, wastewater samples can identify a rising trend of infections early on. End quote. And Amy Kirby, the head of the CDC's wastewater monitoring program, told Bloomberg, quote, While wastewater levels are generally very low across the board, we are seeing an uptick of sites reporting an increase. These bumps may simply reflect minor increases from very low levels to still low levels. Some communities, though, may be starting to see an increase in COVID-19 infections as prevention strategies in many states have changed in recent weeks. End quote. And I do want to reemphasize that it doesn't seem like we're on the brink of anything dire here. But watching the cases tick back up in Europe and knowing there's a slightly more transmissible subvariant on the rise is a good reminder that no matter what restrictions may be being lifted, it's not all over yet. And those lifted restrictions were never meant to be a permanent end, just a temporary break. As Lawrence Young, a professor of molecular oncology at Warwick University, told CNBC, quote, Living safely with COVID doesn't mean ignoring the virus and hoping it will go away forever. End quote. And there's this from Scientific American yesterday, quote, The 1918 pandemic is often described as having three waves. The first came in the spring of 1918, followed by a notoriously deadly second wave that fall, and then a third wintertime wave in early 1919, with cases eventually subsiding by the summer of that year. But historian John M. Barry, author of The Greatest Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, says a new variant emerged in 1920 and effectively caused a fourth wave. This wave killed more people in some cities than the second one, even though there was widespread immunity to the virus by then. Although many cities and public institutions imposed restrictions during the second and third waves, virtually none did so during the fourth. By 1921, the flu death toll had returned to pre-pandemic levels, but moving on too soon was a mistake, says Barry. End quote. Barry does also say, however, even though there really is no way to know, he does think that subsequent variants of COVID will continue to be less virulent. 
And again, we can never directly compare our current situation to ones of the past. It's just worth keeping in mind that just because some people decide they're done with the pandemic doesn't necessarily mean it's done with us. In the creator space and sort of hustle-adjacent corners online, there are endless posts, articles, books, videos, entire podcasts about how to harness creativity, where to find inspiration, how to stay motivated, how to create like an artist. Well, for anyone who's ever felt like even all of those hacks just aren't enough for you to be as creative as you wish you were, researchers from Ohio State University have another solution. They developed a method for training people to be creative, and they've been test driving it on the U.S. Army. The training protocol borrows from the narrative theory, which essentially recognizes that all people are creative and pushes people to find that creativity by making up stories. Angus Fletcher, a professor of English at OSU and member of the university's Project Narrative, developed what he calls the narrative method. Quoting Science Daily, The narrative method of training for creativity uses many of the techniques that writers use to create stories. One is to develop new worlds in your mind. For example, employees at a company might be asked to think about their most unusual customer, and then imagine a world in which all their customers were like that. How would they have to change their business? What would they have to do to survive? Another technique is perspective shifting. An executive at a company might be asked to answer a problem by thinking like another member of their team. The point of using these techniques and others like them is not that the scenarios you dream up will actually happen, Fletcher said. Creativity isn't about guessing the future correctly. It's about making yourself open to imagining radically different possibilities, he said. When you do that, you can respond more quickly and nimbly to the changes that do occur. End quote. The narrative method is in contrast to the divergent thinking technique that has been the foundation of creative thinking since the 1950s. It's a computational approach that relies on logic, analogical thinking, and problem solving. And that all sounds alright, but Fletcher says it hasn't delivered over the years, especially because it depends too much on data from the past. What we need, especially now, is the ability to problem solve for problems that don't even exist yet. The narrative method, meanwhile, tries to get people back to the level of creativity that they had as kids, which studies have shown is significantly greater than we have as adults. Even just four or five years into schooling, kids' imagination and ability to perform creative tasks drops. And that's not all a bad thing, you know, they're learning all kinds of important logic and critical thinking skills, but if there were ways to continue exercising that imagination muscle, we could all be better served. Fletcher and his team have published initial findings in annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, but they are continuing to conduct randomized controlled trials of the narrative method on 600 U.S. Army majors. Fletcher explains that the biggest benefit of being able to have a concrete curriculum to train people to be more creative is that then you don't have to hire creative people, you can just train the ones who are already there. Or, you know, you can also probably use the narrative method to awaken creativity in your own life and not just for your employer.
A lot's going on up in the skies right now. And I don't just mean a bunch of space junk, a flurry of Starlink satellites, and Russia threatening to abandon U.S. astronauts. There are phenomena of a non-human-induced nature afoot as well. We are now in the rising phase of the sun's 11-year cycle, with solar flares and coronal mass ejections, or CMEs, ticking up in frequency. According to Science Alert, those have been happening almost every day since mid-January, and some of them have gone in the Earth's direction, meaning we'll be experiencing some solar storms soon. But you probably won't notice. There's actually been a few geomagnetic storms over the past few days, but they measured G1 and G2 on the five-level scale. Quoting Science Alert, This level indicates there may be some degradation of high-frequency radio signals at high latitudes, and corrective actions may need to be taken for satellites due to changes in drag. There may be power grid fluctuations and some disruption to migratory animals' activity. And if the conditions are right, satellites can be knocked out of the sky. We may also see an uptick of both Aurora Borealis and Aurora Australis. End quote. And from a recent post in The Conversation by Sandra Chapman, director of the Center for Fusion, Space, and Astrophysics at the University of Warwick, quote, As well as emitting sunlight, our sun has an expanding atmosphere made of charged particles and magnetic fields. This high-speed solar wind blows over Earth, but Earth has its own magnetic field. Imagine a large bar magnet with its poles roughly aligned with geographic north and south. And this can deflect the solar wind. This magnetic barrier is weakest at the poles of the bar magnet so that we tend to see auroral displays at high latitudes. The bigger the space weather storm, the deeper charged particles can penetrate the magnetic field of Earth, so that during intense events, the northern lights are seen at lower latitudes. End quote. In addition to auroral displays in Scotland, some have also been spotted recently as low as northern England. And Space Weather's Aurora forecast says tonight will have a KP5 on the 10-point KP index of geomagnetic activity. So if you live anywhere that occasionally sees auroras, try checking out a place with low light pollution tonight and maybe you'll spot one. Even with how much the sun has picked up in activity, we're still a few years off from its peak of activity in its cycle. We'll hit the maximum of its 11-year cycle in 2025. That's when we'll really need to brace ourselves for solar storms that might actually have a noticeable effect on everyday people, especially because some data suggests this has been the strongest solar cycle ever recorded thus far. But for now, just enjoy the cool lights, or videos of generous people posting them. And on that note, I will put a link in the show notes to a breathtaking but ultimately calming hour-and-a-half-long video of Sofian Pamart playing a grand piano beneath the northern lights in Lapland, Finland. As Mashable put it, watch out, David Attenborough, because Barack Obama is the new host of a Netflix nature documentary series. He narrates and appears on screen, showing us the weird and magical life that can be found in national parks all around the globe. It's a real Planet Earth-style doc with extreme close-ups and sweeping panoramas, but it seems to have a bit of a conservation bent, maybe also a little bit of civics thrown in with the national parks focus and knowing the kind 
kind of theme that Barack and Michelle tend to go for with their production company, Higher Ground. The series is called Our Great National Parks and is coming to Netflix on April 13th. And honestly, it just looks like a really solid nature series that makes excellent use of Obama's soothing but friendly voice. Of course, it is also kind of weird to see a former president in a gig that could have gone to someone like, I don't know, David Tennant. But apart from that, it looks pretty cool, and you can check out the trailer in the show notes. And that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.